0: if you think beyond the troubles that began in the 1960s and even go back to the whole legacy of partition and the roles that the churches played north and south from that period and their contributions both positive and negative you know why not expand the past we deal with to that 100 year period um, and some of the societal um, traumas really (laughs) that have affected both north and south i think that might be an even more productive conversation than just dealing with the past of the troubles.
1: Hello, and welcome to this month's Aaron's podcast. I'm Rory Montgomery. Our topic this month is religion and the public sphere in Ireland, and specifically religion in a post-Brexit island. I'm very glad that we're joined today by Gladys Daniel who's reader at the School of Social Sciences, Education and Social Work in Queen's University, Belfast, and associated with the Mitchell Institute. And she's published an article in the Aarons series in the Journal of Irish Studies and International Affairs called Pulpit to Public, Church Leaders on a Post-Brexit Island. And also published um, in the same place is a comment on Gladys's article um, by Philip McDonough. Uh, Philip is a former Irish diplomat and former colleague of mine, therefore. He's currently the um, director of the Centre for Religion, Human Values and International Relations at Dublin City University. He's an adjunct professor there. And in his very distinguished diplomatic career, he was ambassador in a range of places, um, particularly relevant, I suppose, for today's purposes, uh, ambassador to the Holy See, uh, and also um, involved in the peace process in the embassy in London in the 1990s. So maybe, Gladys, we could begin with with you. In the article, what were the main issues you were seeking to address and explore?
0: Well, I was really exploring the church leaders' contributions to public debates about what a post-Brexit island would look like. And I argued that um, really they've made two contributions. And the first is that the way they've spoken about Brexit has been to always link it with issues of reconciliation and dealing with the past. So you could almost say what they've done is they've brought debates about the past into the future of the island, really just reminding us that we can't move on without addressing the past. And then the other main contribution that I say they have made is organising facilitated dialogues around these issues. And the groups that are examined in the article, there are specific examples of how they have done that.
1: Well, thank you. I mean, obviously, the churches, north and south, Protestant and Catholic and, and other, they're less influential probably in, in, in the public realm than they were. Um, what would you say, I mean, is the current state um, of the churches and in particular their role in relation to to public issues uh, as we live in an increasingly secularised world? Yeah,
0: there's no doubt that the public influence of the churches is declining. And it's declined for a number of reasons, general processes of secularization, which are common across uh, Europe and the Western world, been affected by that. And also by the church's failures to address, address their own uh, past failures, I think as well. When social scientists think about secularization, they usually try to measure it in three main ways. So one would be to look at the way religion has separated from politics. Um, And you can see very clear examples of how that has happened um, in the last 100 years on the island of Ireland. Um, They also look at religion's decline in public influence, um, so the effect religion might have on people's um, social morals, um, et cetera, et cetera. Again, huge declines in that um, across both parts of the island. And then social scientists would also look at declines in religious practice and church attendance or mass attendance. This is always uh, the big indicator here And it can be quite uh, instructive, I suppose, to throw out the figures from that, just to remind people. So say 1972, more than 90% of people in the Republic of Ireland are going to mass or going to church on a weekly basis. And by the mid-90s, that's down to around 65%. By um, 2016, about 35% are going weekly. And it's even lower um, now as we're into 2021, um, probably into the below 30% now on a, on a weekly or a monthly basis, even. In Northern Ireland, you have similar um, figures as, of decline as well. You know, Catholics in the 1960s are going to Mass weekly 95% of the time. 1998, that's down to 81%, and now they're about 46% monthly. Um, and the Protestants in the North in the 1960s, 45% are going weekly. 1998, that's down to 52% monthly, and now they're sitting at about 46% monthly as well. So a similar rate of attendance uh, between Catholics and Protestants in the north. So you can see those the big declines in church going as well as that loss of influence on politics and influence on society and the wider culture.
1: Uh, The rate of decline, um, though, from the figures you've given has been perhaps even steeper um, in the Catholic church than in the Protestant churches.
0: Yeah, it's, it's quite stunning. Uh, Crawford Gribbon has described in the Republic as a sort of sudden onset secularization that started happening in the, the 1990s, kind of a falling off a cliff, um, really, in terms of the way mass attendance has fallen away. And even in the north, um, where mass attendance is still higher amongst Catholics, there has been a, a very a much bigger drop in attendance amongst Catholics than amongst Protestants, albeit starting from a higher base. And again, there's lots of reasons for this, but I mean, the elephant in the room around this is the Catholic Church's response to the abuse crisis. Really, I think that is a, an important factor.
1: Uh, Philip, um, what, what's your take on the uh, secularisation trend in, in both jurisdictions? I think it's accompanied
2: by other trends. Um, trends in politics, for example, where we we talk now of a loss of trust or where in in the United States there are concerns about a split in society into separate epistemic tribes or where the President of the European Commission in her last State of the Union address stressed the need for the European Union to have a soul which is language uh, going back to Schumann and Delors. So I think on the positive side of the equation, there's a greater mutual literacy emerging between religious actors and public authorities. Last week, I chaired a panel at the European Union's Fundamental Rights Forum with the participation of the General Secretary of the Irish Council of Churches and others um, with connections to religious communities on the island. And the strong sense was that their voice was needed and is needed Um, on the one hand the religions are beginning to understand the way in which they should find their voice in the public square, not to have the last word but to be present Um, and also to be humble about the past in many respects but also governments, public authorities European institutions are beginning to understand that politics doesn't create the values on which society rests. It responds to the values, it nurtures the values, but there's something else going on in any society. Um, and that's where I think the role of of religious communities and of the churches can now
1: grow again. And in your comment, you also make the point that, of course, um, what one might call, um, you, you know, cherished secular values or or beliefs about society and politics are also under threat.
2: Well yes, that's that's the point of the center that has been created in DCU where I'm the founding director. The Tishk launched the center in April and he made some very um interesting comments along the lines that I've just been trying to set out. For one thing, he spoke of the need to understand better the concepts um, which will govern multi-stakeholder dialogue involving religious actors. And he, the Taoiseach also spoke of the need to interpret our high-level values again for the new existential challenges we face. We know that when we were involved in the peace process, we were acting in the perspective of high-level values. And we know that many other policies, for example, peacekeeping or development policies, are inspired by high-level values. But what I understood the Taoiseach to say was that we need to bring these high-level values into play in the face of the new challenges, such as climate change and the lessons of the pandemic for health care and so on. And so there's plenty of work to be done um, by by religious actors and my personal hope is that the churches and religions in discovering the important contribution that they can make to society will also experience a renewal of of interest in those parts of society which we now consider you know secularised
1: Thank you Um, Gladys I mean in your article and you alluded to this earlier you look in some detail um, into a a range, if you like, of church groupings or or bodies, and um, maybe you might just say you know, what they are, uh, what you discovered their main activities are and have been, uh, and indeed the the differences between their uh, objectives.
0: Yes, so I looked at three main groupings really, and I chose these groupings because they were the ones that were talking about Brexit. So it should be seen in a wider context of not a lot of church-based dialogue about. Brexit and the future, but the ones who are doing it are, are basically these three groups. And um, so the first one profiled is Cori Mila. is Ireland's oldest reconciliation centre. It was set up in 1965, and it's located in Valley Castle on the north coast. And it's been involved in issues of peace and reconciliation for generations. But in response to Brexit, it set up a dedicated public theology project called Border Crossing, exploring belongings to the Book of Ruth. And this was part of the, uh, the context of an All-Ireland Symposium of Civic Leaders that was set up by the Irish government. Now, around 5,000 people engaged with the materials produced for this project, which was led by Padre Gotuma and Glenn Jordan. And, and they published a book in 2020 um, outlining some of the theology behind it. And within this project, that link between Brexit and dealing with the past was very much um, there. And they also produced a report with 12 pretty wide-ranging policy recommendations aimed at uh, government as well. The next group I look at is the Irish Council of Churches and the Irish Interchurch Meeting. The Irish Council of Churches was founded in 1923, and it's a body for the Protestant churches on the island of Ireland. The Irish interchurch meeting is when the Catholic Church gets together with the Irish Council of Churches, basically, and this arose out of the ballymas talks in 1973. Um, Beginning around 2015, these two groups working together began a process of addressing what they perceived as their weaknesses, and they restructured their work um, around some new working groups, including one on Brexit and one on dealing with the legacy of the past. And in terms of public dialogues they've organized and statements and reports produced, again, you see that very strong link between Brexit and dealing with the past uh, coming through what they've said. The third group is the Church Leaders Group, and this is comprised of the Arch-Catholic and Church of Ireland Archbishops of Armagh, the Presbyterian moderator, the Methodist president, and in 2015, it was expanded to include the president of the Irish Council of Churches. Now, of course, all throughout the Troubles, the church leaders made various statements about peace and so forth. But this group in 2015 uh, became more formalized and it has, I think, started to achieve a higher media profile than the other groups, given who it comprises. Um, One of the most uh, significant um, things this group did was in September 2018, when the Northern Ireland Assembly was suspended, it organized talks with the leaders of the five largest political parties in the north, and um, those talks were held in the Presbyterian headquarters in Belfast. And that was the first time those parties had met together in eight months, and it could be argued that kind of kick-started the um, process of getting uh, dialogue going again to restore the assembly, uh, really. And the church leaders group has also, um, around the centenaries, or- organized a program of events. Um, The most significant of which um, many people will have heard of is the church service in Armagh, which uh, President Michael D. Higgins uh, famously declined an invitation to attend. And that followed on from um, their St. Patrick's Day statement, which included a confession in it for the church's failures um, for not, um, I suppose, doing enough to contribute to peace, reconciliation and so forth as well as the church's role in promoting division and violence. And that, that confession, um, in my judgment, is probably the most comprehensive apology that the churches at that level have ever made for their role in promoting division and violence on the island. So those are some of their significant activities.
1: Gladys, I wanted to ask you um, about the organisations and groups which you cover uh, in your article. I mean, maybe you could let us know what are their main activities, what are the differences between them in terms of their focus, uh, and to what extent is there cooperation between them? I'm aware that uh, the head of the Irish Council of Churches is now a member of the Church Leaders Group, for example, but it would be helpful to get a sense of of how they all fit together.
0: There's a lot of overlap and interaction between the groups, so they're almost like a network (laughs) or an ecosystem, I suppose, Um, you could argue, um, in terms of the people involved in the relationships that have been built there. Um, Cori Mila perhaps stands a bit apart because it is that dedicated reconciliation centre, um, but certainly the relationship between ICC, IICM and the church leaders group um, is, is quite significant. I think the church leaders group, um, you know, given the, the authority of the figures involved in the various denominations, maybe commands more attention and um, perhaps has more of a public flat, plat, platform, the national level ecumenical organizations whose actions are probably only followed or known by <laughs> a few people who are um, you know, quite interested in interchurch work, which is um, a minority, I suppose, amongst much of the, the general public.
1: And going on to Brexit uh, itself, now you already said, Gladys, that the churches have framed the response to Brexit uh, you know, in, a, in a wider context. And of course, obviously, uh, given um, presumably, especially in the Protestant churches, that um, a lot of um, you know the faithful uh, would have voted in different ways, or would have been differences between Remain and, and Leave very clearly. Um, would you like to say a little bit more about um, about that Brexit response?
0: Well, I suppose the Brexit response, you know, it's quite measured in many ways. You know, there's uh, an effort not to take a position on, leave or remain, really, particularly um, on the part of the church leaders and the ICC, IICM. So the the main aspect, I suppose, of their work has been to try to promote understanding, dialogue, I, I suppose, a humanization of the polarized uh, positions on Brexit and reminding us of the dangers of that polarization. So that's where the the link back to the past and the need to deal with the past comes in. You know, in some ways, Brexit forces us to think about the future differently. And how can we think about creating a vision for the future unless there is, you know, some effort to confront the past and redeem the past as well. So, um, there's also this aspect of trying to focus the debate around the common good, and this would be language that the church leaders uh, use publicly, and also um, in terms of meetings with policy policymakers and politicians, trying to bring uh, discourse back uh, to the common good and um, to promote discourse that is, I suppose, respectful um, and, and measured. You know, a lot of political debate these these days is quite. Polarised, and it's an attempt to say, well, we don't need to have a polarised debate about the future. Can we think of it in terms of the common good rather than in the zero sum terms um, of the past as well?
1: Philip, uh, on on Brexit, which obviously has thrown a very large rock uh, into a previously comparatively still pond. Um, what's your own sense about the church's um, positioning uh, in regard to the controversies which have uh, grown up?
2: I think Gladys has made the fundamental point that the churches are keeping an eye on the big picture. Uh, I think in Gladys' article, she links Brexit and climate change in one particular sentence. Now, the big picture for me is defined at the moment by the most recent report of the UN Secretary General, which was published in September, called Our Common Agenda. And he basically says that the global community is facing either breakthrough or breakdown. There are dangerous tendencies towards the closing off of avenues of dialogue. So against that background, um, the role of the churches and of the religions is to do everything possible to be part of the solution. And I think the step... One in this process is what I said before, it's mutual literacy, it's religious actors and the public authorities understanding one another and understanding their different responsibilities. But step two has to be the establishment of frameworks of engagement in which uh, we can enter into the, the most existential challenges, the grand challenges of our time in sufficient depth. And on the basis of personal relationships, the church leaders have emphasized that the initiative in creating um, the resource of friendship in society can come from the churches or from other actors in civil society. Leadership in this area can take many different forms. So there's a lot to be said, but I think the key is to move from mutual literacy to the right frameworks of engagement. And as Gladys has said, that depends on understanding the big picture. And I might mention in that context the work of my centre because we have a partnership which is on our website and it's all well known with the Irish Council of Churches and the Irish Interchurch Meeting. And we're now bringing in other faith communities as well in order to explore two main themes the first is um the well-being concept which the governments north and south are committed to developing you know indicators for um society other than gdp and secondly the european question you know what should um the churches and religions say about Europe today. We're having a conference at DCU in early December on the conference on the future of Europe at which the participants will be nominated mostly by the churches. Um, And in that connection, we're very mindful that the European Union must also focus on relations with neighbors. Um, uh, It's not just about the EU 27. In the longer run, so um, we're working in a pragmatic way with the churches to try to find these new avenues or frameworks, in order to to make the voice of of the churches more clear in the public in the public sphere.
1: Gladys, uh, leaving aside for the moment the current controversy over centenaries, uh, which we'll come back to uh, towards the end of our conversation. Um, How would you assess the overall public um, impact uh, of this work that you've uh, described uh, and indeed the political impact? You mentioned earlier uh, the the possible role of the church leaders in kickstarting discussions on the restoration of the institutions. But have they made a difference? And maybe you might talk specifically um, about the extent to which uh, those who actually are practicing Christians um, are aware of. Um, and supportive of uh, the work by their leaders and representatives.
0: Yes, um, and I think to answer that, I'd like to go back to, to something Philip was talking about, you know, when he was mentioned the need to have frameworks for engagement um, with the churches. I think it's important to say in answering this question that the churches, the church leaders now, they don't expect a privileged place um, in society or with politics. You know, they, they want to place it a table, but they're not making a case for themselves to be um, the ultimate authority, as it were. So I think that's an important piece of this context and their ability to make a difference. Now, it's very hard to measure this um, <laughs> empirically. I mean, you can look at things um, like I do in the article in terms of, you know, when the church leaders meet with the um, politicians, what do they talk about? Um, you could say, well, does, did they did they help get the Northern Ireland Assembly back up? Um, have they influence pol- politicians discourses. you know you can't really draw a direct line between these things. You can I suppose co- point out correlations, but you can't make a strong claim um, for co- causation. So that's that's quite a different difficult thing. Um, and I think also we need to get into this conversation, you know the idea of the churches they don't expect privilege anymore, but they are also struggling a bit <laughs> with legitimacy. You know, in terms of the wider public sphere, um, the, all the churches, but the Catholic Church in particular, have had their legitimacy um, really questioned um, by the abuse crisis and also by all the churches' um, role during uh, the troubles. You know, the criticism that maybe they didn't do enough to challenge division and violence at that time and were just chaplains to the tribe. So there's this wider public sense that the churches don't have legitimacy anymore. And I think that's something the churches are aware of, and it's something that they need to address, are beginning to address, but could address better. So when I mentioned the St. Patrick's Day statement earlier and how that included a a confession, really, for the sins of the churches, I think that's important. And there needs to be more of that for the churches to regain legitimacy um, in terms of the public um, and the, the politicians even as well. Um, Back to that issue of the awareness of the work of these groups amongst churchgoers. Again, this is relatively limited. Um, As I said earlier, I chose these groups to look at because these are the groups who are talking about these issues. But my sense is that the the vast majority of people sitting in the pews aren't necessarily thinking (laughs) along these lines. And this was a a huge um, aspect during the Troubles as well. You know, you had some very prominent um, church leaders who were very public in their advocacy for reconciliation, but that was not reflected in the general mass of churchgoers. So you have some public leaders who are raising these issues, but I would say many, many churchgoers are, are unaware of it um, and perhaps concerned with, with other uh, issues as well.
1: One of the points you make, Gladys, uh, in the article is that even though uh, the churches are are all island bodies, uh, that there is a substantial difference uh, in the level of activity uh, and the impact uh, north of north and south.
0: Yes, that's right. Um, particularly um, if you look at the churches during COVID even, now the church leaders group made a number of statements about various um, issues and so forth, but there are far more statements concerned with policies in, in Northern Ireland uh, than in the Republic of Ireland. And um, there's also a sense, I think, that perhaps relationships with politicians and church leaders in the North are are a bit more um, healthy, maybe is the word, than in the the South as as well. And that was maybe reflected in, for instance, when the churches in the North um, at one point voluntarily said, well, we will tell our people not to go to church rather than being told by the government that you must close church buildings. So just a, a slight emphasis there in the way the relationship between the churches in the state were ex- expressed um during the the COVID lockdowns and so forth. So I I definitely think there's a, a different level of contact and um listening perhaps amongst politicians in the north um, and the church leaders than in the south. And this reflects I suppose um the higher rates of church going in the north and the greater social role and um, that religion um still has in the north.
1: And I suppose also the the conflict in Northern Ireland and the divisions between communities have also, I suppose, uh, established maybe a a sort of a more urgent uh, agenda for their intervention.
0: Um, Well, I mean, I think you can make that argument. And certainly, um, when I'm talking about the churches bringing up our need to deal with the past, you know, most people, when they think of dealing with the past on this island, think of Northern Ireland, and we have to deal with the past in Northern Ireland. But I actually think you know, that may be one reason why there has been a greater focus on the North, but I think a more effective focus would be to frame dealing with the past in terms of an all-island um, agenda, really. And I think this is something the church leaders could be quite well-placed to do. If you think beyond the troubles that began in the 1960s and even go back to the whole legacy of partition and the roles that the churches played North and South from that period and their contributions, both positive and negative, you know, why not expand the past we deal with to that 100-year period um, and some of this, the societal um, traumas, really, that have affected both North and South. I think that might be an even more productive conversation than just dealing with the past of the Troubles.
1: It's impossible, of course, not to think about uh, the controversy regarding the um, marking of the centenaries of partition and of the establishment of Northern Ireland. I should say that we're recording this conversation just uh, two days before the service in Armagh, though as you listen to it, it will have, have passed by a, a week or so. Gladys, do you think there's any need for the church leaders group in particular to draw consequences from the controversy or, or indeed even learn lessons? Or was it simply a sort of unfortunate um, once-off Uh, episode.
0: Well, What has struck me about the whole episode is, um, I suppose, what has been revealed about the breakdowns in communication, I suppose, um, despite goodwill, I think, on all sides, in terms of of dealing with the past. So, I mean, I think there are definitely lessons on all sides to be learned about um, good communication. Um, At the same time, you know, in the article, I talk a bit about how with the church's declining influence, that their public, um, role and their, actually some of the contributions they've made have not really been picked up <laughs> by wider society. And in a sense, you could say in a, a kind of ironic way that the, the negative publicity maybe is giving church leaders a chance to communicate something of the, the more positive vision, you know, that they're trying to articulate and, um, Obviously, we don't know what's going to happen in the church service, but if it's an opportunity um, to give people a space to lament all oh, that has gone before, that has um, been difficult and traumatic for people on the island, if it's a place for the churches to confess their own failures um, in that regard and to building on that, provide some sort of vision of hope for the future, you know, more people are probably going to be paying attention now <laughs> than they would have been if there had been no controversy, you know. So if it can, if it, it can be grasped as an opportunity, maybe, um, you know, something more positive could come out of the, the episode.
2: Uh, Philip, anything to add to that? I think Gladys has chosen the key word here, which is hope. Uh, I think the world has a huge need of hope. And you don't find hope in a laboratory. You know, hope is upright action for the sake of a future we don't see. You know, Abraham lives in a tent in the desert for the sake of a very remote future. Um, And I think that we're now at a stage in culture in in every part of the world in which there are big changes happening. And I just mentioned two of them, if I might. But one is, with climate change, the idea of freedom as choice is not enough. Freedom has to include responsibility and a sense of the wider community. Um, And with that growing awareness, which I think the younger generation very strongly feels, there's a sense about rights and dignity um, A sense that it's not just about the individual, but it's about the quality of relationships in society. Human dignity includes not just many individual rights, but the right to a social environment and indeed to an environment to bring in the climate change issue again, um, which governments have to work together to bring about. So with this transition underway in our culture... um, There's more need than ever for actors who are capable of going back to first principles, who are capable of understanding the fundamental structural question which you face, whether you follow Confucius or whether you're um, a follower of Buddhism or Christianity or any other great cultural tradition. And it's the question of what is the common criterion that unites all our separate activities and endeavours there needs to be some kind of overall sense in what we do and nobody can escape that question
1: we're almost out of time uh, but I wanted to ask Philip uh, one uh, final question and Philip if you could just give us a couple of headline points um, comparing um, the public role of Irish churches uh, to churches of which you may be aware in other European countries um, Would you say there are strong differences or are there any examples of involvement uh, in other countries from which the Irish churches could possibly learn? That's a very big question. I think it's
2: very beneficial to come together uh, as churches to ask this question. You know, both the Protestant churches and the Catholic Church have offices in Brussels, for example. Um, and then there are um, other groups which bring together churches from across the wider Europe. Um, and if you, if if one might say so, the greatest um, weakness of the churches historically, and of other religions, of course, is to slip back into an enclosed space where you don't really understand what's happening outside that space. You might say that was one of the contributory causes of the First World War and the whole struggle we've had in the meantime to piece together the international order because at the time of the First World War, the churches found themselves taking national positions. and um, So I think the lesson is that the churches and religions should speak among themselves and across borders because they are, by definition, transnational. They actually belong to, in terms of Greek philosophy, they belong to the tradition of cosmopolitanism, which is that we are citizens of the world as well as citizens of our own society. And perhaps the great cultural challenge today in the world is to recover the right meaning of cosmopolitanism.
1: Well that's uh, a that, that that's certainly an interesting an interesting uh an interesting argument and it's good to be reminded of the meaning of the word cosmopolitan. Um Gladys uh, just before we wrap up uh, any final thoughts from you um anything you would like to draw attention to in your article and um, which we haven't been able to cover?
0: Well, I think just listening to what Philip said there um I think churches in Ireland and in Europe or wherever you know I think this idea of being able to renew themselves as institutions is very important in order to make a contribution um as well philip is talking about speaking amongst themselves um this reminds me of i suppose even the language of uh the, the the synodal process right which is walking together and that walking together and the listening to each other i think that is very important and the recognition that institutions today not just church institutions but all institutions really in civic society are in a bit of trouble in terms of the loss of trust and the dangers of polarization and so forth. So I think there has to be a willingness not to do things the way they have always been done. And sometimes maybe churches learn that lesson lesson a bit later than other institutions. So being willing willing to be open um, to change and renewal and being once amongst many in the wider societal conversation. I mean, I think is the way that you can see religion make a public contribution.
1: Well, Gladys, that's optimistic and challenging note is a good one on which to end. So I want to thank you very much and Philip indeed for a most stimulating conversation. Thank you.
2: Thanks. Thanks very much,
1: Rory. Aarons, it's joint project of the Royal Irish Academy, the premier All-Ireland Scholarly Institution, and the Kew Norton Institute for Irish Studies at the University of Notre Dame's Kew School of Global Affairs. Its mission is to publish authoritative, independent, and non-partisan analysis and research on constitutional, institutional, and policy options for Ireland, North and South, in a post-Brexit context. Now, if you've enjoyed this podcast, you can find more and read the research in full on this and on all the other articles at com. And my thanks to everybody for listening to this podcast. Thank you.